Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, and as usual for this book, trigger warning, the past was the worst, and there's a lot of dodgy stuff in this book because the past was the worst. Any offensive language, I'm of course going to be ducking, but um, if those sorts of things trigger you, or you find them offensive or too offensive to listen to this book, um, listen to a different one. Go to Frankenstein or Dracula or a book that isn't as offensive, say. Um, yeah, let's dive in. The languages and whatnot used in this book do not express my opinions, but they're in the book, so I'm reading it for you. Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Chapter 20 they asked us a considerable many questions. Wanted to know what we covered at the raft that way for, and laid by in the daytime instead of running? Was Jim a runaway n- Says I, goodness sakes, would a runaway n- run south? No, they allowed he wouldn't. I had to account for things some way, so I says, My folks was living in Pike County, in Missouri, where I was born, and they all died off but me and Pa and my brother Ike. Pa, he lowed he'd break up and go down and live with Uncle Ben, who's got a little one-horse place on the river, 40 mile below Orleans. Pa was pretty poor and had some debts, so when he squared up, there weren't nothing left but $16 and our gym. That weren't enough to take us 1,400-mile deck passage, nor no other way. Well, when the river rose, Pa had a streak of luck one day. He catched this piece of a raft, so he reckoned we'd go down to Orleans on it. Pa's luck didn't hold out. A steamboat run over the forward corner of the raft one night, and we all went overboard and dove under the wheel. Jim and me come up all right, but Pa was drunk, and Ike was only four years old, so they never come up no more. Well, for the next day or two, we had considerable trouble, because people was always coming out in skiffs and trying to take Jim away from me, saying they believed he was a runaway. We don't run daytimes no more now. Nice, they don't bother us. The Duke says, Leave me alone so I can cipher out a way that we can run in daytime if we want to. I'll think the thing over. I'll invent a plan that'll fix it. We'll let it alone for today, because of course we don't want to go by that town yonder in daylight. It mightn't be healthy. Towards the night, it began to darken up and look like rain. The heat lightning was squirting around, low down in the sky, and the leaves was beginning to shiver. It was going to be pretty ugly. It was easy to see that. So the Duke and the King went to overhauling our wigwam to see what the beds was like. My bed was a straw tick, better than Jim's, which was a corn shuck tick. There's always cobs around about in a shuck tick, and they poke into you and hurt. And when you roll over, the dry shucks sound like you was rolling over in a pile of dead leaves. Makes such a rustling that you wake up. Well, the Duke allowed he would take my bed, but the King allowed he wouldn't. He says, I should reckon that the differences in rank would have suggested to you that a corn shuck bed wa'n't just fittin' for me to sleep on. Your grace'll take the shuck bed yourself. Jim and me was in a sweat again for a minute, being afraid there was going to be some more trouble amongst them. So we was pretty glad when the Duke says, "'Tis my fate to always be grand to the mire under the iron heel of oppression. Misfortune has broken my once haughty spirit. I yield. I submit." "'Tis my fate. I am alone in the world. Let me suffer. I can bear it.'" 
We got away as soon as it was good and dark. The king told us to stand well out into the middle of the river, and not show a light till we got a long way below town. We come into sight of the little bunch of lights by and by, that was the town, you know, and slid by, about half a mile out, all right. When we was three quarters of a mile below, we hoisted up our signal lantern, and about ten o'clock it come on to rain, and blow and thunder and lighten like everything. So the king told us both to stay on the watch till the weather got better. Then him and the duke crawled into the wigwam and turned in for the night. It was my watch below, till twelve, but I wouldn't have turned in, anyway, if I had a bed, because a body don't see such a storm as that every day in the week, not by a long sight. My souls, how the wind did scream along! And every second or two there'd come a glare that lit up the white caps for half a mile round. You see the islands looking dusty in the rain, and the trees thrashing around in the wind. Then comes a whack! Bum-bum! Bumble-umble! Umble-umble-umble-umble! And the thunder would go rumbling and grumbling away. And quit. And then, rip, comes another flash, another sock the logger. The waves most washed me off the raft sometimes, but I hadn't any clothes on, and I didn't mind. We didn't have no trouble about snacks. The lightning was glaring and flitting around so constant that we could see him plenty soon enough to throw our head this way and that and miss him. I had the middle watch, you know, but I was pretty sleepy by that time, so Jim said he would stand the first half of it for me. He was always mighty good to me that way, Jim was. I crawled into the wigwam, but the king and duke had their legs sprawled around, so there weren't no show for me, so I laid outside. I didn't mind the rain, because it was warm, and the waves weren't running so high now. About two, they come up again, though, and Jim was going to call me, but he changed his mind because he reckoned they weren't high enough yet to do any harm. But he was mistaken about that, for pretty soon, all of a sudden, along comes a regular ripper and washed me overboard. It almost killed Jim laughing. He was the easiest to laugh that ever was, anyway. I took the watch, and Jim, he laid down and snored away. And by and by, the storm let up good and all. And the first cabin light that showed, I razzed him out, and we slid the raft into hiding quarters for the day. The king got out an old ratty deck of cards after breakfast, and him and the duke played seven up for a while, five cents a game. When they got tired of it and allowed, they would lay out a campaign, as they called it. The duke went down to his carpet bag and fetched up a lot of little printed bills and read them out loud. One bill said, The celebrated Dr. Armand de Montban of Paris would lecture on the science of phrenology at such and such a place on the blank day of blank at ten cents admission and furnish charts of character at 25 cents apiece. The Duke said that was him. In another bill, he was the world-renowned Shakespearean tragedian Garrett the Younger of Dury Lane, London. In other bills, he had a lot of other names, and done wonderful things, like finding water and gold with the divining rod, dispatching witch spells, and so on. By and by, he says, But the historionic muse is the darling. Have you ever tried the boards, royalty? No says the king. You shall, then, before your three days older, fall in grandeur, says the duke. The first good town we come to will hire a hall and do the sword fight in Richard III and the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. How's that strike you? I'm in up to the hub for anything that will pay, Bilgewater. But, you see, I don't know anything about play-acting and ain't ever seen so much of it. I was too small when Pap used to have him in the palace. Do you reckon you can learn me? 
Easy. All right, I'm just a freezing for something fresh anyway. Let's commence right away. So the Duke, he told them all about who Romeo was and who Juliet was and said he was used to being Romeo and so the king could be Juliet. But if Juliet's such a young gal, Duke, my peeled head and my white whiskers is going to look uncommon odd on her, maybe? No, don't you worry. These country decks won't ever think of that. Besides, you know, you'll be in costume, and that makes all the difference in the world. Juliet's in the balcony, enjoying the moonlight before she goes to bed, and she's got on her nightgown and her ruffled nightcap. Here are the costumes for the parts. He got out two or three curtain calico suits, which he said was the medieval armor of Richard III and t'other chap, and a long, white, cotton nightshirt, and a ruffled nightcap to match. The king was satisfied, so the duke got out his book and read the parts over in the most splendid, spread-eagle way, prancing around and acting at the same time, show it had got to be done. Then he gave the book to the king and told him to get his part by heart. There was a little horse town about three miles down the bend, and after dinner, the duke said he had ciphered out his idea about how to run in daylight without it being dangersome for Jim. So he allowed he would go down to the town to fix that thing. The king allowed he would go too and see if he couldn't strike something. We was out of coffee, so Jim said I better go along with him in the canoe to get some. And then we got there. There weren't nobody stirring. Streets empty and perfectly dead still, like Sunday. We found a sick sunning himself in the backyard. He said everybody that weren't too young or too sick or too old was gone camp meeting about two miles back in the woods. The king got the directions and allowed he'd go to work that camp meeting for all it's worth, and I might go too. The duke said what he was after was a printing office. We found it, a little bit of concern over a carpenter shop. Carpenters and printers all gone to the meeting and no doors locked. It was a dirty, littered up place, had ink marks and handbills with pictures of horses and runaway on him all over the walls. The duke shed his coat and said he was all right now, so me and the king lit out for the camp meeting. We got there in about half an hour, fairly dripping for it was most awful hot day. The woods was full of teams and wagons, hitched everywheres, feeding out of wagon troughs and stomping to keep off the flies. There was sheds made out of poles and roofed over with branches where they had lemonade and gingerbread to sell and piles of watermelons, and green corn, and such-like truck. The preaching was going on under the same kind of sheds, only they was bigger and held crowds of people. The benches was made out of outside slabs of logs with holes bored into the round side to drive sticks into for legs. They didn't have no backs. The preachers had high platforms to stand on at one end of the sheds. The women had on sunbonnets and some had linsey woolly frocks, and some gingham ones, and a few of the young ones still had on calico. Some of the young men was barefooted, and some of the children didn't have clothes on, just a toe linen shirt. Some of the old women was knitting, and some of the young folks was courting on the sly. The first shed we come to, the preacher was lining out a hymn. He lined out two lines. Everybody sung it, and it was kind of grand to hear it. There was so many of them, and they done it in such a rousing way. Then he lined out two more for them to sing, and so on. The people woke up more and more and sung louder and louder, and towards the end, some began to groan and some began to shout. Then the preacher began to preach, and begun in earnest, too, and went weaving first to one side of the platform and then the other, 
and then a-leaning down over the front of it, with his arms and his body going all the time, and shouting his words out with all his might. And every now and then, he would hold up his Bible and spread it open, and kind of pass it around, shouting, It's the brazen serpent in the wilderness. Look upon it and live. And people would shout out, Glory! Amen! And so he went on, and all the people groaning and crying and saying, Amen. Oh, come to the mourner's bench. Come, black with sin. Amen. Come, sick and sore. Amen. Come, lame and halt and blind. Amen. Come, poor and needy, sunk in shame. Amen. Come all that's worn and soiled and suffering. Come with broken spirit. Come with contrite heart. Come in your rags and sin and dirt. The waters that cleanse is free. The door of heaven stands open. Oh, enter in and be at rest. Amen. Glory. Glory. Hallelujah. And so on. You couldn't make out what the preacher said anymore on account of the shouting and crying. Folks got up everywhere in the crowd and worked their way just by main strength to the mourner's bench with the tears running down their faces. And when all the mourners had got up there to the front benches in a crowd, they sung and shouted and flung themselves down on the straw, just crazy and wild. Well, the first I knowed, the king got it going. And you could hear him all over everybody. And next, he went a-charging up on the platform. And the preacher begged him to speak to the people, and he'd done it. He told them he was a pirate, had been a pirate for 30 years out in the Indian Ocean, and his crew was thinned out considerable last spring in a fight, and he was home now to take out some fresh men. And thanks to goodness, he'd been robbed last night and put ashore off a steamboat without a cent, and he was glad of it. It was the blessedest thing that ever happened to him, because he was a changed man now and happy for the first time in his life. And poor as he was, he was going to start right off and work his way back to the Indian Ocean and put in the rest of his life trying to turn the pirates into the true path. For he could do it better than anybody else, being acquainted with all the pirate crews in the ocean. And though it would take him a long time to get there without any money, he would get there anyway. And every time he convinced a pirate, he would say to him, Don't you thank me. Don't you give me no credit. It belongs to them dear people in Pokerville Camp Meeting. Natural brothers and benefactors are the race. And that dear preacher there, the truest friend a pirate ever had. And then he burst into tears. So did everybody. Then somebody sings out, Take up a collection for him. Take up a collection. Well, half a dozen made a jump to do it, but somebody sings out, Let him pass around the hat. Then everybody said it, the preacher too. So the king went all around through the crowd with his hat, swabbing his eyes and blessing the people and praising them and thanking them for being so good to the poor pirates away off there. And every little while, the prettiest kind of girls with tears running down their cheeks would up and ask him if he would let him kiss him for to remember him by. And he always done it. And some of them he hugged and kissed as many as five or six times and was invited to stay a week. And everybody wanted him to live in their houses and said they'd think it was an honor. 
But he said, as it was the last day of camp meeting, he couldn't do no good. And besides, he was in a sweat to get to the Indian Ocean right off and go to work on the pirates. When we got back to the raft and he come to count up, he found he had collected $87.75. And then he had fetched away a three-gallon jug of whiskey, too, that he found under a wagon when he was starting home through the woods. The king said, take it all around. It laid over any day he ever put in the missionary line. He said it weren't no use talking. Heathens done him out to shucks alongside of pirates to work a camp meeting with. The duke, he was thinking he'd been doing pretty well till the king showed up. He'd set up and printed off two little jobs for farmers in that printing office, horse bills, and took the money, four dollars, and he'd gotten in ten dollars worth of advertisements for the papers, which he said he would put in four dollars if they would pay in advance, so they'd done it. The price of the paper was in two dollars a year, but he took it in three subscriptions for half a dollar apiece on occasion of them paying in advance. They were going to pay in cornwood and onions, as usual, but he said he had just bought the concern and knocked the price down as low as he could afford it and was going to run it for cash. He set up a little piece of poetry, which he made himself out of his own head, three verses. Kind of sweet and saddish, the name of it was. Yes, crush, cold world, this breaking heart. And he left that all set up and ready to print in the paper and didn't charge nothing for it. Well, he took in nine dollars and a half and said he'd done a pretty square day's work for it. Then he showed us another little job he'd printed and hadn't charged for because it was for us. It had a picture of a runaway with a bundle on a stick over his shoulder and said $200 reward under it. The reading was all about Jim and just described him to a dot. It said he'd run away from St. Jack's Plantation 40 miles below New Orleans last winter and likely went north. And whoever catch him and sent him back, he could have reward and expenses. Now, says the Duke, after tonight, we can run in the daytime, if we want to. Whenever we see anybody coming, we can tie Jim hand and foot with a rope and lay him in the wigwam and show this handbill and say we catched him up the river and we're too poor to travel on a steamboat, so we got this little raft on credit from our friends like going down to get the reward. Handcuffs and chains would look still better on Jim, but it likely wouldn't go with the story of us being poor. Too much like jewelry. Ropes are the correct thing. We must preserve the unities, as we say on the boards. We all said the Duke was pretty smart, and there couldn't be no trouble about running daytimes. We judged we could make miles enough that night to get out of reach of the powwow we reckoned the Duke's work in the printing office was going to make that little town. Then we could boom right along if we wanted to. We laid low and kept still, and never shoved out till nearly ten o'clock. Then we slid by, pretty wide away from the town, and didn't hoist our lantern till we was clear out of sight of it. When Jim called me to take the watch at four in the morning, he says, Huck, does you reckon we go out and run across any more kings on this trip? No, I says. I reckon not. Well, says he, that's all right then. I don't mind one or two kings, but that's enough. This one's powerful drunk, and Duke ain't much better. I found Jim was trying to get him to talk French so he could hear what it was like, but he said he'd been in this country so long and had so much trouble he forgot it. Thank you very very much for listening if you enjoyed please like comment share all that jazz and if you really enjoyed do subscribe because there is more to come and if you're listening on podcast please leave a review it helps get this in front of as many people as possible and reading your reviews really really makes my day i have a feeling that this is all going to go very 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 badly 
Uh, the idea of tying Jim up so that they can travel in the day seems like a recipe for disaster. Either Jim's going to drown, or $200 was a lot of money. So I think maybe someone's going to come on board and just, like, try and take Jim from them. Just, sh- you know, try and threaten them, say, look, I'll shoot all of you, just give me Jim, and, you know, I'll go down and get the reward myself. Um, Interesting. Let's see how it plays out in a couple of days. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.